This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hiya. So this week we have so much to talk about, so much for having a quiet August. We're going to be talking about the outlook for takeovers and IPOs as markets rebound, looking at the latest options for mortgage holidays, the rise in pension scams, talking about the newest Monzo Challenger, and also explaining what the heck share splits are. I have no idea. Um, A quick note before we get started that this is my last podcast for a while as I'll be off on maternity leave for a bit. But Dan will still be here every week with some other regular faces and voices standing in during that time, and we'll be covering the same great topics. So what you did? I think you forgot to tell everyone. This is this is news to the world. <laughs> yes, I. Well, this is the benefit of uh, lockdown. No one's seen me. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's get on with the podcast. What's been happening in markets this week? Um, so on the market, so it's, it's been fairly quiet in terms of sort of corporate activity. Um, there's been a few results out and it's the market's sort of been clinging on to the usual stuff of any sign of um, progress with potential vaccine for coronavirus. Um, and also, obviously, what's been going on with US politics um, as eyes start to sort of look towards the impact of the US presidential election later this year. But to really, on, on the FTSE 100, um, it's down just over 1% on the week. Um, the best performing stocks were Aviva and Intercontinental Hotels. And I'll come on to those two stocks a bit later because they're relevant to another topic we've got. Um, and it's been a bad week for for miners and energy stocks. So really, it's not not a lot, to be honest. It's, uh, I guess, a lot of people are on their holidays. Um, people perhaps aren't paying as much attention to to what's going on with markets at the moment. They're trying to enjoy a bit of sun while they can before, you know, autumn is upon us. Um, and so kind of putting market stuff aside, with markets where they are, there's lots of talk of both takeovers, but also companies choosing to float on the stock market. So let's tackle them one at a time. Let's start with takeovers first. Are we seeing any kind of pick up and are people looking to pounce on their rivals? Well, there's certainly there's a bit of talk now, and I think this stems from uh, you know, companies seeming to be starting to be a bit more optimistic about stuff. And obviously, we've had a very sort of strong run for stock markets around the world in general um, since April onwards, really. And so, I think you're now getting a stage where um, you know deals have been on hold during the pandemic and now really that, that, that you know there's people sort of sniffing around thinking well are there companies still looking cheap either because of the the sort of the sell-off earlier this year or just in general certainly UK equities have looking cheap for a long time you could trace it back to the the Brexit decision really um, and so um, you know things happen then so you, you're either going to see sort of takeover activity or companies are feeling a bit more confident about coming onto the stock market so so amongst the takeover stuff there's there's been chatter about bt um trying to shore up its defenses i think it's a bit worried that its share price is is really weak uh and is it vulnerable to someone coming along to 
um, potentially making a takeover offer. But I think that there's massive issues there. It's got big, big pension funding issues to address. And um, it's also got very large capital expenditure commitments as well. So um, someone coming along and just making an offer for them, it's not a simple story to look at. Um, you'd have to weigh up quite a lot. Um, and then and you know, we've had uh, Aviva, not, not the insurance company, but the technology company, AVEVA, um, has just announced a 3.8 billion takeover of a US rival, Aussiesoft. Now that makes it Britain's highest value quoted software company, overtaking Sage, uh, because it's going to, to raise a bit of money um, from shareholders to help fund this deal. So we've had the AA is in talks with um, various suitors, and there's been chatter about um, some private equity interest in ASDA. Because uh, obviously, if, if you go back um, a small while, when there was ASDA and Sainsbury's were looking at a potential merger, which never really happened. Um, now, ASDA's owner, Walmart, clearly uh, you know, probably was weighing up his options since then. And uh, there's been some talk of, you know, do, does it want to? Um, spin out Asda onto the stock market, or or does it want to find a buyer for it? So there, there's definitely some chatter about that. And then the the, the other deal is sort of been um, murmuring away in the background is does the hotel company Accor want to merge with Intercontinental Hotels? So so yes, yeah, so there's loads of this. There's definitely stuff bubbling away in the background with talker takeovers, but you know we haven't seen massive deals yet. But I wonder whether is this just around the corner? And I remember us talking relatively near the start of the whole kind of lockdown pandemic period. And you were talking about how lots of companies were going out and raising more money to shore up their balance sheet or for potential future takeovers. So are we are we expecting to see a bit more with, with companies using some of that cash that they've maybe got on their balance sheets? Yes, I think so. I mean, you've had you know, quite a few companies that sort of come out and said, actually, we're in a better shape than perhaps people thought we would be um, and that we've raised money to help keep it going. You know, so really, you know, they are, they're looking like an, in a great position to be able to, to pounce and do some deals. So here's an opportunity to either um, strengthen your market share by buying uh, a rival or perhaps you want to uh, you know, strengthen your technological capabilities or you, know, you might want to sort of test dip your toe into a, a new sort of adjacent market potentially as well you know, that, that could open up avenues for future growth so yeah i think i think you're going to see some stuff happening and also it's probably worth um, appreciating that lots of private equity firms are sitting on a lot of cash um you know over the last few years you've had private equity companies have been selling assets and so they've been you know, if they haven't found anything new in which to invest, um, that this cash has been building up. So I do think, it, you know, if, if confidence is returning to the markets, it must surely equate to confidence returning to the deals happening. And if you're a shareholder of a company that gets taken over, is that always good news? Not always good news? Or well, really vary? no, no, not always, actually. It's because, you know, imagine that you're invested in a really great company and you're hoping to generate really nice returns every year for the future um, and you think okay this is a nice thing to, to, to buy and hold in my portfolio and then it gets taken over well you might get 20-30% premium to the market price but it's then gone so yeah I think you know, this is an underappreciated thing about takeovers that um, losing something isn't necessarily good long term whilst it might give you a very short term uplift in the valuation. So then the other side of this is that there's some talk of IPOs. So these are initial public offerings and it's where a company that was 
um, private floats on the on the stock market and people are able to buy shares in it. So it might seem, I mean, to me, it seems slightly odd timing after such big market falls um, for a company to, to go to the stock markets and, and, and effectively sell all or, or part of the company there, um, particularly as there's still so much uncertainty in the market. But um, that doesn't seem to be stopping people, does it? No, not really. I mean, I say, if, if, if the fact that we've seen a lot of companies this year successfully go to investors and raise money to help keep them going through the pandemic, it shows this appetite amongst investors to back businesses. Well, I think the IPOs that you're going to be seeing now will have been in the um, been prepared quietly uh, for a long time before the pandemic came along. And I've certainly come across a few things, examples of ones that going back to, they've been planning this since 2019. Now, one company that has been talked about for quite a long time is Ant, this Chinese financial technology company. Now, it's going to finally float now. um, And it could be the biggest IPO in history. So raising an, yeah, raising an estimated 23 billion pounds. So this is, perhaps best known for the mobile payment service Alipay. So it, it was launched by this Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba and, um, and, it, and it's now become China's dominant mobile payments business. It, po- it processes 20, just over £22 trillion worth of payments and transfers annually. So that's there's more volume than MasterCard and Visa combined. And this business could be, yeah, this business could be worth as much as £230 billion when it joins the stock market. So, um, yeah, it's huge numbers. And you can perhaps see immediately just from those numbers that uh, there could be quite a lot of interest from investors. Now, it's not coming on to the UK market, unfortunately. This is going to be in um, Chinese markets. But it's um, it's a great indication that um, if you've got a good story to tell um, and clearly you're linked here, you know, tapping here into a very strong structural growth trend of mobile payments, um, I imagine there would be a, you know, a lot of interest here with Ant as well. Um, well particularly um, investors might be interested in that because Scottish Mortgage, the very popular investment trust, has a stake in Ant, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, if, with, with Scottish Mortgage, it, it, it's it's the size of its stake is relatively small. So I don't think it's going to sort of cause this massive spike in Scottish Mortgage's share price once Ant starts trading. But what it does is it sort of really vindicates what Scottish Mortgage is trying to do. So um, it runs a portfolio of um, companies that embrace technology to help them grow. And it's got a mixture of companies that are on the stock market and privately run. So the fact it is backed Ant privately years ago um, shows it's very good at picking future winners. And it's it's got plenty of examples of this. And of course, you know, if Ant does very well, biggest IPO in history, it's just a, it's another tick in the box for, um, you know, what Scottish Mortgage is trying to prove to people it's very good at doing. So that's obviously um, overseas markets. Do we have any examples in the UK where companies are planning to flow? Yeah, there's some early signs of names coming fairly soon. So um, there's an investment trust called Triple Point Energy Efficiency, which is hoping to raise about £200 million and join the London market towards the end of October. Um, here it's in hopes to invest in energy efficient assets. So stuff like combined heat and power, um, industrial energy efficiency as a service, um, and then distributed generation like hydro and solar energy. So um, th- there's been quite a few of these sort of infrastructure sort of linked 
um, or energy style renewable energy investment trusts. And um, I think what people like these products if they can pay out um, a nice dividend. You may not get too much with um, share price appreciation year after year, but you know you probably make most of your gains with these through um, through income and. There's a couple of gold miners as well. So we've had one, um, a small one fairly recently, and, and there's another one, a Canadian company called Yamana, which used to be on the London stock market, but actually it's talking about coming back. Uh, it's making the argument that the London market doesn't really have a big gold stock anymore ever since Rand Gold Resources left a few years ago. So um, that's the name to watch. Um, there is another um, quite interesting investment trust coming in September. I'm not allowed to give you all the details um suffice to, secret and suffice to say um it's got an interesting uk angle to it uh, and I th- I, you know we'll hear more about it very soon when it goes public on its plans but um i, I was looking at some information from a law company called squire Patton boggs um now they've been obviously uh, sit on the other side of things rather than an investor but they, they, obviously they're helping companies to come to the market from from on the legal services side now they're reporting um a big increase in ipo inquiries from companies saying you know could you help us bring us to market uh, particularly amongst the aim junior market so um they say that they're currently instructed on, on multiple ipo transactions at different stages so that's i mean that, that's you know, there's a really um Proof, proof that things are happening. If the if the lawyers are saying uh, things are starting to pick up, then I guess you wait a few more months and you could see some stuff. And so what they're saying is that they, they could see um, there's a window between now and mid-November where you might get some companies. But obviously you've got things like the US elections in November and perhaps the, the risk of a second pandemic wave and obviously there's the Brexit negotiations with trade talks might um, throw a spanner in the works but you know they're thinking that the real momentum will begin to build during the first half of next year with new companies coming to the stock market. Because I guess it takes a long time from kind of first initial inquiries to actually being ready to float on the stock market, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean it can take six months to to do all the to go through things. There's a lot of you know, preparation that goes on behind the scenes. Um, companies need to do initial meetings with potential investors to see if they they're interested in the story. Then they've got to sort of talk valuation and. Um, you know, lots of masses of legal paperwork and making sure your business and your accounts all up to scratch and stuff like that. So yes, it is, it is a lot of work going on. But you know, it, it, to see um, new names join the market is is um, quite, it can be a positive sign, particularly if you get some you know very interesting companies. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get a lot of tech stuff and healthcare, only because I think those are the sectors that people are particularly interested in at the moment. And they're going to get pretty high valuations at the moment. Well, I think some of them might want to, but I think it, it's more of a case. It's the long term, you know, particularly on the tech side of things. It's what what's the long term capabilities of these businesses? How how are they different from what's already in the market? And I think that if you've got a very interesting proposition, and um, and actually the UK is quite good at uh, uh, you know these smaller companies coming onto the market slow and, and well they slowly sort of get their name out there and there's definitely lots of institutional investors who are happy to support a business and be patient to let it grow um so really you know a lot of criticism for the a market but actually it does a good job of um, among sort of the tech side of things so on to another topic the covid crisis obviously meant a lot of changes to how 
banks deal with customers uh, and debt and mortgages. So millions of people have opted to take a mortgage holiday during the pandemic. But the regulators now issued new guidance for those people, hasn't it, Laura? So what could tell us what's going on? Yeah, so as a result of um, people's finances potentially being hit by the pandemic, um, the regulator, the FCA, said that banks had to offer the ability for people to have mortgage payment holidays, which um, we've talked about on the podcast before. And if you want more detail on how they actually work, you can go back um, to to an episode earlier this summer that talks about it a bit more in detail. Um, But they've been hugely popular. A lot of people have taken up the chance to take a holiday from their mortgage and, and defer paying it. Um, so one in six homeowners have taken a mortgage holiday, uh, which is pretty massive when you think about it. Um, and some of those will have taken it as a precaution. They'll be worried about their finances being hit um, during coronavirus, so they've taken the chance to take a mortgage holiday now, whereas others will have been forced to take it because they've either already lost their job or they've lost some of their income or they've been furloughed, for example, and they can't afford to pay that um, each month. The, the regulator extended it already, and so the scheme, the current scheme runs until the end of October, where you can take a three-month payment holiday, and you can actually take up to two of those, so potentially six months payment holiday in total. Um, but as of the 31st of October, that, that scheme ends, uh, so the regulator had to come out and say, well, what actually is going to happen to people after this point, because... Um, Obviously, from that point, the furlough scheme is also ending around that time. We've already talked on the podcast before about how unemployment is expected to rise and we're seeing headlines already of lots of companies laying off staff. So just because this mortgage holiday scheme ends at the end of October doesn't mean that people's financial difficulties are going to end at that point. Um, What the regulators decided to do, rather than extending the current scheme, is just issue some guidance on what mortgage companies should do. So I think lots of people were hoping that that the current scheme where you could take this three-month deferral would carry on maybe until the end of the year, um, and that would give homeowners a bit more breathing space. Um, But that's not likely to be the case. And instead, um, the regulator said that there's a few things that your mortgage company should do. So so it's much more on a case-by-case basis rather than having this blanket deferral. Um, If you're on a payment holiday already, then your mortgage company needs to get in touch with you before the end of that holiday to talk about some of your options. Um, But any kind of further payment holiday they give you or any of those options are going to be much more bespoke rather than being a kind of national programme. And crucially for people, any help that you get now is going to be reflected on your credit record. So until now, the regulator has said that people taking these payment breaks shouldn't be detrimentally impacted in terms of their credit file. Um, but from the end of October, any any breaks you do take will appear on your credit record. So that's obviously going to impact your ability to get a mortgage in the future, potentially, or other debt. Do you think that the banks have got the capacity to be able to look at these things on a case-by-case basis? Because you know there was lots of talk when these the issue sort of first arose people waiting ages to get through to their bank to talk to them so i wonder it's sort of catching the banks off guard really if they're being told to do sort of um sort of more bespoke uh, appraisals yeah and um, um put bluntly no i don't think they do have the the capacity for it so we're already still seeing reports of it taking ages to get through on the phones to banks even though we're so far into kind of this 
lockdown process and businesses adapting to new ways of working. Um, and the regulator itself acknowledged that banks are probably, or some banks certainly, are going to have to hire additional customer service people to look at um, customer files because of the demand. And that acknowledge that also those individuals might not be that well trained because they're going to be new to the job. Um, so I do think it's potentially could be quite frustrating for customers. I think in that early lockdown period where businesses was kind of scrambling to adapt to their call centres working from home, for example, or social distancing, things like that, I think customers were a little bit more understanding because it was such an unprecedented time and everyone was having to adjust. We're now however many months, five, six months into that process and I think maybe some of that sympathy from customers has evaporated a bit and people kind of expect these massive banks and and mortgage providers to have um, got themselves in order and um, be set up so that people don't have to wait for ages on the phone to to get through. But this is definitely going to add to their workload. So what, what are the options for people now then in this situation? So you've got a few things that your mortgage company is going to offer you. Um, one of them might it might be a further payment holiday, so carrying on um, kind of deferring those payments and, and not making your monthly payments. Um, so that's one option. Obviously, that will be reflected on your credit file. So if you were able to make um, some contribution to that, then then that will probably be reflected better. Um, another option would be to extend the term of your mortgage. So that works by then reducing the monthly payment that you've got to make. Um, or switching the type of mortgage you've got. So if at the moment you're paying off the interest and the capital, it might be that the mortgage company suggests that you might be in a better position to switch to an interest-only mortgage, which is obviously much um, lower cost each month in terms of the payment that you need to make uh, because you're only paying the interest, you're not paying off any capital. But again, that has longer-term implications in terms of you're not going to be paying down any of the debt that you own, you're just going to be... um, paying off the the interest on it. So all of these things, I think, need a lot of consideration before you immediately jump at the chance to kind of save a bit of money each month. And so continuing with the theme of the kind of COVID impact on our finances, the number of pension scams has soared in the pandemic, but also soared over the past three years. Um, So I caught up with Tom Selby at AJ Bell earlier to talk about the new figures that have come out. So the latest figures have come out that show that £30 million have been stolen from pensioners over the past three years uh, where they've been scammed out of their money, um, ranging from losses of £1,000 up to half a million pounds or even higher in some cases. So um, do we believe those figures? They seem quite high, but but actually when you think about all the number of people who've got pensions out there? Uh, so I suspect that those figures are, are just the, the tip of a very large iceberg. So um, what the, the FCA, uh, the Financial Conduct Authorities, uh, has reported are the, the number of the, the, the value of scams that have been reported to action fraud, which is the, the main body that takes complaints about scams. So since um, 2015, when people got lots more flexibility over how they um, access and spend and invest their pension pot. Scammers have increasingly targeted people to take their money out of pensions and put them into investment-based scams. So if you look um, back to 2018 alone, the, the, the value of investment-based scams was somewhere in the region of £200 million just for that year. So I think in terms of the amount of money that people are losing from their pensions to to scams it's going to be more in the region of hundreds of millions of pounds um certainly since 2017 anyway rather than 30 million pounds but it's it's difficult to get 
exact figures. And another reason why partly it's difficult, of course, is that a lot of people who fall victim to scams tend to either not know that they've been scammed initially, or they might be um, embarrassed about the fact that they've fallen for one of these tricks and have lost all their money as well. So these are just just estimates, but it will be a significant number and I suspect significantly higher than the, the number the FCA, FCA reported. And I remember um, we got you on the podcast before to talk about the cold mm. calling ban, which was basically mm. um, calling people out of the blue to talk to them about their pension. Yeah. So has that not worked to, to stop some of these scammers? So it was the, the cold the cold calling ban was always designed to make it more difficult for scammers. Um, so to outlaw one of the key methods that pension scams and investment scammers tend to to use in order to target often vulnerable people um, and convince them to part with their money. But one of the one of the issues you're always going to have with any kind of um, regulatory intervention or legislative intervention is that a lot of people who are trying to scam you out of your pension aren't necessarily going to abide by the law or care for the law. So while you can put barriers in place like a ban on pensions cold calling, um, some scammers will simply flout that ban. Uh, there's also inevitably will be some people who perhaps move call centres overseas where they can avoid um, regulation in the UK. And increasingly we've seen a lot of scam activity moving online as well. So I think you've talked previously about you know, the use of social media for the scams and quite often nowadays you see scams popping up on things like Twitter and, and Facebook and that's that seems to be the the avenue that scammers tend to prefer uh, to prefer to use at the moment so uh, the ban on cold calling was good it was helpful I think anything that governments can do to reduce the like to, or to make life more difficult for scammers is a, is a good thing but it was never going to put a stop to scam activity altogether and um, I think what we're seeing and this is always always the case with um, all kinds of frauds not just pension fraud and one of the one of the sad things about it is that when you're in a, a really difficult period of time as we're facing at the moment uh, as as covid kind of has ripped through the ripped through the country and lots of people are now facing lots of economic uncertainty they might be facing uncertainty about their job or whether they pay the mortgage and um, that's the kind of environment that scammers will inevitably thrive in and they'll look to target people who are in a vulnerable state to try to convince them to invest in things which are either going to be are either not going to deliver what they say they're going to deliver or they might just end up losing all their money altogether and so I looked through the, the press release that the regulators mm. sent out on this 30 million figure of kind of yeah. raising awareness of pension scams, all very admirable, but mm -hmm. they seem to have linked it to football and I don't <laughs> understand what they're doing. Yeah, so I, I assume it was just to appeal to me, someone who likes pensions and football <laughs> a lot. Yes, yeah, um, really, <laughs> your centre zone there, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, no, I think so. I think there is method to the the seeming madness of that um, particular piece of FCA communication. So I think the FCA has done quite a lot of good work in trying to get the word out about the dangers of pension scams to different. Um, parts of the population because ultimately while governments can intervene and do things like ban um, cold calling and other things it's the, the the best way to make sure that people are protected from scams is to communicate with them get stories out there in the in the press there's also been a big advertising campaign by the FCA to raise awareness of scams and the tactics that people use in order to then allow people to protect themselves and be aware of some of the, the telltale signs of these types of schemes and so bringing it back to what the FCA has done and football fans. So the, 
the as as you said at the at the top of the segment, um, uh, the loss. So the FCA was kind of looking at the different kinds of people who are affected and the numbers involved. So they said losses range from a thousand pounds to about half a million pounds. So lots of different sizes of pots. But the average pension scam victim is apparently a man in his fifties. Now that would makes sense in terms of the kind of person a scammer would target because they'd want to be targeting someone who perhaps can just is just getting to the point where they can access their pension pot and someone who they'll, they'll ideally want to target someone who's got quite a lot of money in their pension pot and that is more likely to be a man in their 50s perhaps moving into the 60s than anyone else um, and so the FCA was looking at, in particular at the the kind of behaviors that type of person might uh, might show and clearly lots of men in their 50s will be football fans and so they looked at comparing how much people know about their pensions versus how much they know about I think the example they used was the cost of a season ticket and so it was roughly 40 I think 40 45 percent of people didn't know how much money they had in their pension while about three quarters near the cost of a, of a season ticket um, and 45% of people didn't know how to check if an approach from someone who might be a scammer was legitimate. So what, what they're trying to do here is target a specific group of people, i.e. men in their 50s, and find out and, and I guess explain the dangers of scams to those people and the fact that um, potentially they're, they're at the most risk of anyone of falling of falling victim to to those kinds of scams yeah okay that makes sense i'll let them off i'll allow this one <laughs> um, i mean i mean, mean interesting one of the points that they they drew out as well was the um the fact that a lot of people within this group tend to be overconfident and i think hubris might be um, a problem particularly for the the male section of the population so they found around two-thirds of people said they thought they were confident of spotting a scam but, but around 40% of that group of people who said they were confident were still putting themselves at risk by engaging in some of the common scam tactics. So things like high pressure sales and, and guaranteed returns um, on offer. Quite often these scams offer, 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 will claim that you can get guaranteed investment returns of 10, 15, 20% a year, which clearly isn't realistic for any type of, um, of investment. And that, that, that finding from the FCA actually tallies with some research that we did looking at um, looking at the, the vulnerability of younger people to early access style pension scams. So these are scams where scammers will offer to allow you to get access to your pension before the age of 55, which isn't normally allowed. And you'll end up with a, at least a big fat tax charge as a result. And at worst, you'll end up losing all your money as a result. And in the, in the research that we did, we found that um, young men were twice as likely to fall or to, to engage with um, an offer to access their pension early versus young women. So it was about one in 10 young women versus 20, 22% of young men. So there's, there's clearly a trend in terms of men, for whatever reason, um, being more open to the kind of tactics that scammers tend to use. And so I think what the regulator is trying to do is communicate with that particular set of the population who are, it seems, more vulnerable to the kind of tactics that scammers will use. And so I feel like we cover this each time we talk about scams, but it's still worth mentioning what are the kind of, give us the kind of five quick things that you can do to avoid being scammed. Yep. So um, if I would say if you get a, the first one, if you're contacted at the blue by anyone, then 
um, you should be extremely suspicious. So as we mentioned earlier, cold calling is banned. So if someone calls you out of the blue about your pension, you should know that they are breaking the law and hang up the phone immediately. Um, as with all investing, and I'm sure people who listen to this podcast well, aren't the kind of people who who should fall victim to this, although hubris can be a can be a problem, but you need to do your due diligence on wherever you're going to put your money. So if someone comes in offering you an investment, whoever they may, they may be, check that they're regulated, check that you know how much money you have as well, that's one of the problems, um, and check that you know where the money is supposed to be going. Um, make sure you're not rushed into a decision as well. That can be a classic tactic. And that's a, that's a tactic that's used by uh, salespeople across the world, of course, but particularly um, in the case of scams, they'll often try to push you to make a decision saying that this is a, a time-limited investment offer that's about to run out. So if you see something along those lines, then alarm bells should be um, should be ringing um, and as I, as I mentioned if anyone offering guaranteed returns so if any 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 investment that's claiming to pay five ten fifteen percent and you're absolutely certainly going to get that money um, those kind of offers should really set hairs running in your mind in terms of the legitimacy of that offer so I don't know if that was five things or not but I think um, yeah, I think I think for most people, it's just being alive and aware to this stuff. So being alive to the fact that if someone's coming and, and actually engaging with your pension pot as well. So one of the problems that the FCA um, found was that people, I think there's this there's this sense that people have no idea of what what is in their pension and almost don't really see it as real money. So when someone comes in with a scam type offer, they're more likely to part with their pension money than perhaps they would be to part with money in their bank account, which feels somehow more real. So understanding, first of all, what's in your pension and thinking about that as actual money, which it is, it's your money, it'll be taxed, so, you know, 25% will be tax-free and some of it will be taxable, but that's your money. And if you move that to an investment, then you're potentially putting that money at risk. And I think once people start to think of it as real tangible money then they'll be a lot more careful hopefully with where where they try to place it excellent well thanks a lot for coming to explain all that no worries so dan you've been looking into share splits this week which sounds a bit like a gymnastics move but i don't think it is um (laughs) but honestly i'm none the wiser on how they work what they are or why a company would use them so explain it to us like you would explain to an idiot (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's relatively simple to understand. I mean, Tesla and Apple are just about to do it. Um, so Tesla is going to do a five for one stock split. So effectively, for every um, hundred shares you may own in Tesla, after the split, you're going to own 500 shares. Um, but what, what the purpose of it is to try and bring the share price down to much more um, perceived affordable level i mean this is essentially what it is 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 to make the share price seem less expensive so um companies so what's the tesla share price at the moment so tesla's trading at just over two thousand dollars um so if you think yeah so if if you're uh you know if if you want to put some money away and you fancy buying the stock clearly to buy a single share is a lot of money and, and a lot of people won't have enough to buy one share so if you try and um, essentially issue a load more shares so it's a massively increase the number of shares in issue but it, so that will naturally bring the price down um, 
if you still if you say say if you had 100 shares um at whatever it's two thousand dollars and then and suddenly you're going to get 500 shares the, the total value of your investment hasn't changed but i think this is where it's catching people out so i keep seeing on social media and things like youtube people talking about like bye bye now because they think they're going to get a load of free shares but what they're not appreciating is that the price will come down and, and the value of the investment really shouldn't change but actually since tesla announced this on the 11th of august its share price has gone crazy you know shooting upwards i think people think that they're, they're going to be getting like some massive bonus offer here but they don't really understand what's going on so apple is going to do the same thing it's going to cut uh, go for a four to one basis so for every um you know one share that you own in apple you'll, you'll soon get four but priced um, cheaper so it's a psychological thing really isn't it so if you've got a share price of say 500 pounds um you're thinking okay do i want that or but if it's if it's only 125 pounds much people think oh, this is this is better so companies will tell you they're trying to do it to improve liquidity in the stock um, so on the on the uk market witten investment trust did it last year jd sports has done it um you know among the smaller companies air partner did it so so really, I think, you know, the UK market, when I looked at this in the past, um, some of the sort of the analysts I spoke to said that you know, share prices between a pound and ten pounds are generally regarded as sort of sensible level. But if it's low, really low, sort of in the 10p's it's sort of, or, or 1p, can seen as a penny share. And, and, and generally that's got a negative connotation of a business that's a bit you know, very high risk, generally sort of volatile and sort of low quality. Um, if you, you can actually do it the other way around as well. So um, Royal Bank Scotland actually slumped to about 20p um, following the financial crisis. And that's kind of the, the, the share price that some investors associate with you know, biotech and sort of mining exploration companies. So the bank gave shareholders one new share for every 10 that they already owned. And, and it sort of that boosted the share price automatically to, to two pounds. So, uh, you know, I think you often see small cap stocks doing these sort of um, share consolidations. But um, so, if you're an existing sometimes... shareholder of one of these companies, um, so like the Tesla or the Apple example, you don't need to do anything; it'll just automatically show up. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So it'll just you look at your uh, you yeah. You know, if you didn't know anything about this, you'll you might just look at your um, sort of investment account one day and think, oh, blind me, why have I got so many more um, greater number of shares? Or, or fewer shares than I thought, but you know, if you just look at the value of investment, in most cases, it shouldn't really have changed at all because of this, this thing. But, um, but yeah, it's quite interesting. If Tesla and Apple are doing it, two of the sort of the most high-profile stocks at the moment, you wonder whether you're going to get some other people thinking, oh, perhaps we'll do the same. And um, yeah, maybe it just makes it much more appealing to, a, to particularly to a retail investor market. Yeah, because it's just so much more affordable to buy just even one share in it, right? Yeah. So finally, before we go, I know that we talk about Monzo a lot as a challenger bank grabbing everyone's attentions, but it looks like it's going to be yet another new kid on the block. So Laura, who are we expecting to join this big party? Me. So I'm going to spend my maternity <laughs> doing. I'm going to launch a bank. <laughs> Is that not believable? Uh, yeah, so JP Morgan is the latest big company that's expected to um, have a kind of one of these digital challenger banks. Um, so it's very much at the kind of 
slightly rumours, un- completely unconfirmed stage at the moment. The bank hasn't come out and announced anything yet, but it is expected to launch something in the first quarter of next year. Um, okay, and so yeah. it's going to be one of these one of these newfangled digital online type banks that I know you love, Dan. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, though, there's, there's so many of them already. I mean, it's like, what is it going to offer that the others can't? Exactly. And I think what I think is interesting is it's obviously following kind of we talked about Marcus a lot. So that's the the kind of new um, online bank from uh, Goldman Sachs that had originally launched in the US and then launched over in the UK this, no, last year. I lose track of the years. Um, and I, I think it's expected that JP Morgan is kind of going to follow that model of, of taking the, the big company and the, the big backing that it's got and the big financial backing it's got, um, but launching a kind of separate branded online bank. And Marcus did amazingly well, so you can see why another bank might want to copy that. Yeah. I mean, it's quite interesting that this, this, these rumours are coming out just after we've had a warning from Monzo's auditor over the ability of the bank to be a going concern beyond the next 12 months. I mean, this is everyone's talking about Monzo uh, you know, winning a, a great chunk of the UK current account market. But what, I think what we're finding is that you know, most people who use Monzo are not putting their salary in. They're just putting a few hundred pounds, say, every month. Um, and, you know, the business has not really gone very big in, in lending. So the traditional bank model of you, you, you attract businesses um, from savers on deposit and then you use that money to lend out to to other people uh, you know monzo doesn't seem to want to sort of follow that normal model at the moment it's 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 much more still trying to to grab current account people and and again get scale but you know it's its losses are getting bigger and bigger so it needs to start to make some money i think this is the, the end of the day you can have lots of banks with very good services but they're still a business they need to make money otherwise they won't exist unless they've got lots of very uh, perhaps uh, naive shareholders who keep throwing you know, good money after bad money. So it's... And it's an interesting thing to look out for as we're getting more digital banks as a, as a kind of consumer and user of that. You, you want your money held with, I mean, there's obviously protections in place, but you want your money held with a company that's going to be around in, in years to come and that isn't going to struggle financially, which might be why some of these kind of so-called challenger banks that are emerging from existing big brands and big companies might be more popular because you know that you've got the financial backing and the kind of expertise of a massive bank that have been around for ages like Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, but you still get yeah. the kind of trendier online bank. Absolutely. I think that's a, that's a very valid point. And uh, I think, you know, for someone like Monzo, it's, it's praise for the usability of its uh, platform and um, just the ease by which you can do stuff. And, but actually... You know, I think that these big, old, you know, traditional banks have looked at this, and and if they can embrace modern technology and not be sort of held down as they have been for years by clunky legacy systems, you know, perhaps they do have an opportunity to, um, you know, just to, to fight off this competition. So, so this is, uh, I say, Laura's last podcast for some time. So, um, we just want to say all the best with your, um venture into parenthood i hope it goes very well uh and you know we've got our we've got our hundredth episode of the podcast due later this year so hopefully we can tempt you back uh bring you bring the baby and all will um, there be cake <laughs> yes if we'll, there's cake i'll come back 
we'll get you some cake yeah so but no you know so it's it's the laura and i have been doing this together since october 2018 and it's been um you know an absolute pleasure so i'm um, hopefully you know, all the listeners will st- stick with me and um the, the co-hosts that we've got to come and you know laura will be back we can promise you that stick with him it will be worth it when i return so thanks a lot for listening this week and remember that you can email us at podcast.ajbell.co.uk if you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes I'm definitely going to spend most of my maternity leave emailing in Dan suggesting weird topics and um, Dan will be back next week so we'll see you then good see you later before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. (music) 